Our second reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to them, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Dean Miller, and it's my privilege to be on the staff here and to have a chance to open up God's Word this morning. Um, let's go ahead and pray together before we do that. Dear God, we do come and uh, enter into this season the invitation from centuries of men, women, and children who have loved you to ask you to advent into our lives, to break in in a new way as you came and broke into the world. We are willing, as we see in the stories we will look at the next few weeks, for that to be disruptive, to be shocking, to have you have to look at us and say, fear not, and also to be comforted and encouraged. So we bring one another to you, uh, know what each of us needs this morning as we look at this passage in Revelation, and so we ask for your help and guidance. In your name, amen. Amen. If you have a Bible and want to turn to Revelation 7, the passage you just heard read, um, this morning in particular, it would be good to probably have a Bible open, a soft copy, hard copy, as we look at this passage. And um, I want you to think for a second about um, experiences or things in your life that, that take direct and earnest and thoughtful uh, responses, questions and answers. Could be at work, could be with friends or family, could be with uh, your kids, Think about those places where you are engaging in some sort of interaction that doesn't just take a flip response, but is, has more than one simple answer and takes your undivided attention. So as I was trying to think about this week, I thought about um, teaching my kids to drive. So raise your kids if you have taught your kids to drive. Just a reminder, every Sunday we have healing prayer in the back <laughs> for people who have... Okay, I've taught all three of our kids. My experience is in a, in a marriage, usually there's like the one person who teaches to drive and the one who clearly doesn't. Right, and you don't, people are looking at each other, what? Yeah, you know. Um, 
And so I've taught all three of our kids to drive. They're good drivers, but that's an experience where it's, it's immersive, right? You're sitting next to your child who's at the wheel and there's questions and answers and you're trying to explain what is really a vast experience and you realize how vast it is when you try to teach somebody, right? Because there's things like turn lanes, turn signals, stop signs, four-way stops, merging and accelerating, right turns, left turns, right? There's, that's just on their own. Then put other cars in the mix and then if you've done it, you know that it, you, you're bringing not just the sort of direct knowledge, but your personal knowledge of like your neighborhood and your town, right? So you teach somebody driving, you begin to go, oh, here's a nuance at this corner. This is a busy corner. Like one in particular, this is a free tip. Any of you learned to drive? I was thinking this morning, like Hazel, Sammy, Sophia, Oliver, she's here. People who are gonna learn to drive, right? Like Caleb. So if you're driving from Tyson's Corner to Falls Church, right, towards Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, and 66, and you go, if you're, if you're here as a driver, you know coming out of Tyson's, there's three lanes off that one road towards Marshall High School. Now the rookie move is to think they're three lanes forever because people get off 495, right? And then suddenly that lane is gone, right? So all my kids have had, we've taught that experience. Now they call it out, oh, watch this dummy. He's gonna come over and not remember there's a lane, right? But it's something, and in the midst of it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is thoughtful, knowledge I need to impart to somebody that isn't just a quick, hey, watch out. You're trying to explain that lane lasts for 200 meters, then it's gonna go away. And if somebody doesn't know that, they're gonna jump you and you're gonna have to swerve and not get in an accident. Thoughtful responses to important things. This fall, we've been in a series looking at what it means to become the people of God. And we're in our last two weeks of that series, this Sunday and next Sunday. We've heard from Paul and Peter and Matthew and Mark and Luke and now John for the second time. The Apostle John, John who we spent a lot of time with this summer as we looked at his epistles. We know that he was probably the youngest disciple to follow Jesus in the Gospels. We know by now, when we get Revelation, it's similar to when the letters of John were written. It's probably late 80s, early 90s A.D., He's been in Ephesus ministering and serving as sort of a, a new to bishop role for him. But he's done something to anger the emperor. We believe the emperor was Domitian at that time. And Domitian has exiled him to an island called Patmos, which is a couple hours boat ride from Turkey or Asia Minor then. And he's there really in prison on this small island. And while he's worshiping on a Sunday, he's visited by Jesus. And he's given this amazing experience and insight into the world. He's given a revelation, which is the name of this last book of the Bible, as many of you know. Now, it would be good to think of this sermon, my sermon, and next week, Revelation 7 and Johnny next week, Revelation 19, as sort of a one sermon in two parts. And in light of that, I'm going to give a little more attention to the 30,000-foot level of Revelation because of the book, the type of book, the stories, the things we need to understand because Revelation is a, is a sort of teaching somebody to drive kind of book. It's a book that requires a little more thoughtful response. As I do this, I'm super thankful for people who have helped me the last few weeks, particularly my men's Tuesday morning small group who's helped me look at this passage and the text from 1 Peter 2 last week but then also any number of commentaries and scholars, the men and women who've gone before us to hand down to us what it means to understand this super important book of the Bible. What you're gonna hear this morning, and I know we come from different churches, different backgrounds, probably lots of you have heard different ways to interpret and understand Revelation. What you're gonna hear this morning is the sort of standard Anglican way that we would explain this book. Again, super important book. 
And I've taken the liberty of putting on a slide Johnny's cell and home address. And you can call Johnny at any time this week if I'm not clear. So to engage the text this morning, I'm gonna ask and answer five questions and then extract two implications from those answers as we go. So again, as we approach our passage, Revelation 7, how should we understand first Revelation, both this week and next week, the book itself? Because we're not in a series on Revelation, which many of us did together, my old church and this church. We did, if you remember, we did that the spring of 2021. We did that together. Those sermons are uploaded that Johnny did on the Christchurch Vienna website if you want to go back. It was a super important series, I think, for lots of us. But we need some contextual understanding on any book, but particularly Revelation. Two things to note as we look at Revelation this morning. First, it's a type of literature called apocalyptic literature, which is especially popular in the Jewish community from 200 BC to 100 AD. And apocalyptic means an unveiling. That's the, the straight translation, an opening up of heaven. It's a heavenly revelation someone was given. It's a window, a peak, an insight into eternity. This means, in this type of literature, it's not a straightforward story. We're dealing with symbols and metaphors over and over again. How many of you have read Revelation at all and maybe been a little confused about what you're reading? Right? Because we don't typically have seven-eyed, seven-horned sheep walking through the streets of Vienna. But to say that the lamb had seven eyes is to emphasize Jesus' perfection not to give us a physical description of Jesus. The numbers in the book have values and meanings that go beyond what appears on the surface. The book of Revelation stands, is rooted in the doctrine of Revelation, it was a super important part of who God is. God reveals himself to us from go, from Genesis one. God wants to be known. It's, that's amazing, we could spend weeks on that reality. It's God's desire for you to know him to protect, to encourage, to enrich his people. God didn't decide someday, poke Gabriel in the eyes and go, I'm gonna give him this book called Revelation, watch this. It's gonna make them super frustrated. No, he's, he's living out who God is as he has in the other 65 books of the Bible, revealing his good news to the world. And if you go back to chapter one and you read it, you, can, you would see you're blessed already because Jesus and John say in chapter one, blessed are those who read this book. And you've already heard verses read this morning. But in light of the genre of literature that it is, again, we're dealing with symbols and metaphors. So it can be dangerous to assume even that the order in which John is writing is the order in which things will happen. That's gonna matter to us a little bit later this morning. Because John gets invited into heaven, and in heaven there's no time. That's, again, something that could take weeks, something to think about over lunch. So the structure is not a straight line. At times, the vision John is seeing circles back and tells us another view of something. It's like he sees something this way, and in a later chapter, he'll get a look at it from another way. And sometimes the visions overlap. So you hear about today, seven seal openings, and that's happening while seven trumpets are blowing and there's seven bowls in other parts of the book. What's super important and maybe might be helpful for this morning is that chapter seven, while it follows along in our book, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, chapter seven is more easily understood if you read through chapter five, then read chapter seven, then go back to chapter six. 
because it's not actually following in actual events. I'll make, again, we'll explain a little more of that coming up. All that to say apocalyptic literature is inviting us to see something in a way we as fine out people are not used to seeing and have to be careful how we think and understand and interpret it. Second then, Revelation is also a letter from Jesus to you and me. It's to John, but it's to the seven churches in the first few chapters, and those churches are meant to represent every church down through history since the book was given to John. And it, like First Peter, the last couple weeks, an encyclical. It's meant to be spread around what's the most prosperous region of Asia, again, the western part of Turkey now, places now that we'd call uh, Izmir, not Smyrna. And the major message as you begin Revelation is that things are not as they seem and the lamb is on the throne. Things are not as they seem and the lamb is on the throne because again, we believe God is the Lord of the seen and the unseen, the visible and the invisible. And we're being invited to see the invisible. So the book requires a certain humility because what we're gonna be told is, hey, guess what? The things that you think that they are, there's a bigger understanding God's gonna give to John and to us. A simple way to see that is John is in exile on an earthly scene level that looks terrible. The emperor's feeling great, John's exiled. But what we see in the unseen is that's great for us because Jesus is gonna give him in exile this amazing vision that has taught people for over 2,000 years. Who's the winner? Not Domitian, John and you and me. So again, Things are not as they seem, and the lamb is on the throne in this amazing apocalyptic letter from Jesus to you. Second question, then in light of Revelation, where are we in the book in our passage, chapter seven? And a simple organization of the book is to say, there's a visitation from Jesus in chapters one to three, and then a visit to heaven by John in the rest of the book. Jesus visits in chapters one to three, and then John is invited to visit heaven from chapter four through 22. Again, the first three chapters have these warning to the seven churches. Those are beautiful books, if you haven't read those chapters. What we see again in there, the, the real amazing statement of Jesus is, I see you to the churches again and again and again. It's an incredible encouragement to know that Jesus wanted to stress that to you and me. Jesus sees you in whatever situation you're in. And then we transition from those chapters to this heaven's view of what's gonna happen down through history. The rest of the book teaches on the central theme that there is a battle in history between the devil, illustrated by being named as a dragon, and Jesus, both the lion and the lamb, who is going to, to rule and receive honor and glory forever and ever, as we heard in our passage this morning. In chapters five, six, and seven, John is being introduced to the lamb and what he's gonna do and what is coming for God's people, you and I, in this struggle. And what we see is the basic nature of God's story. Remember, we often describe God's story, the gospel story is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Is there are these seven seals in chapter six and seven, they're gonna be opened, and they're gonna illustrate the difficulty of life for us as we live from between restoration, or redemption and restoration. Eugene Peterson has written a great book on this book on Revelation called Reverse Thunder, and he says this, the basic nature of history we see in this chapter, chapter six and then bleeding into seven, is that history is a long sequence of battles. The forces of good and evil are in pitched conflict. People of prayer are in the middle of it even when the guns are silent. 
How many of you feel like as you look at the world or go through life this week, maybe it felt like you were in conflict in some way, shape, or form? Maybe conflict internally, maybe conflict with somebody else, maybe just conflict you see around the world. There's literal conflicts around the world. How many of you prayed about those? Guess what? The people of prayer Eugene's talking about, that's you and me, and we're in the middle of that conflict now. Jesus is showing John in heaven and us through John what's gonna happen in this conflict and how he's gonna make it right-sized at the end of finite time and into eternity. He's showing him who is the winner and who will be the winner. In light of being there in Revelation, our next question, what does that mean for us? Why could the good news of the conflict in chapter seven be a comfort for you and me? I don't really love conflict. How can chapter seven be a comfort as now I'm told in chapter six there's this conflict you and I are gonna live in? One of the men we used, the commentaries we used a lot a few years ago was by a man named Daryl Johnson. Daryl has a great description of this part of Revelation chapter seven. He says, the two-scene vision, if you read all of chapter seven, you'd see the first eight verses describe a vision of people being sealed in Jesus The two-scene vision of Revelation 7 is the most comforting of all the visions recorded in the last book of the Bible, the entire book of Revelation. It creates a state of this well-being and fortifying for courageous action. That is the classic definition of what comforting does. I don't know if you knew that comforting had two definitions. Creates a state of well-being and fortifies you for courageous action. When I think of the word comfort, I think of Cracker Barrel and comfort food. And I do not picture Cracker Barrel preparing me, fortifying me for courageous action. I picture it fortifying me for a really courageous nap. But the biblical way to understand what's happening in chapter seven is Jesus fortifying you for action and safety. These two scenes, verses one to eight and then nine to seven in chapter seven, describe what it looks like for us to be the disciples of Jesus in the world. The first scene Verses one to eight take place before you and I are disciples. They take place and are describing what it means to be brought to Jesus and give him your life and then again be sealed by the blood of Jesus. As we give our lives to Jesus, we're redeemed. Remember that R, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And therefore ready for the conflict described in chapter six. Again, I'd encourage you if you want to know more about this, go home and read chapter five, then chapter seven, back to chapter six. Makes way more sense. Because John's been pulled into heaven, he's seeing all these things happen, and he's trying to describe them in ways heaven sees them. But John's vision tells us you and I, when we give our lives to Jesus, are sealed. The second scene, the one you heard read, verses nine to 17, takes place after the conflict. That's restoration. And after Jesus returns, when he restores the earth, and makes all things new, and he shepherds his saints and wipes their tears. You heard it read, and we sang it, right? How long will we, how long will we, Jesus, take us home? That's what's happening in verses nine to 17. These before and after scenes are telling us that on the horizon behind us, we are sealed. And on the horizon ahead of us, we will be intimate with the lamb who will also be our shepherd. I don't know if you caught that. such an interesting part of that verse. The lamb who is worthy and on the throne will also be your shepherd. Of course, that's Jesus. 
Behind us, you've been sealed and safe because of the blood of Jesus. And ahead of you, you'll be sealed and safe and intimate with Jesus. But in between, we're living in a world of conflict. What those two scenes are supposed to do and why it's a comfort is to encourage us that you and I are safe. We can be radical disciples following Jesus when our very lives are at stake, which was true for those hearing John's words and for John. He had seen his other disciples crucified, martyred. The first scene reveals the servants of God as the angel calls the disciples of Jesus are sealed so they can persevere through the great tribulation the second scene reveals the heavenly reward for those who do persevere, which is you'll be with the lamb who will wipe away your tears. That last scene sounds great. I like the sound of that. But I hear in between there's this chapter six when seals are being opened and things are happening that are hard and clearly the world is racing to chaos. When is that gonna happen? When is the great tribulation? How many of you ever heard that word from Revelation before? When is this great tribulation? Again, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. What John is saying and Jesus is saying is the great tribulation is now. You and I are living during the time of great tribulation. You and I live between the R's, between the redemption and the restoration. Ever since Jesus advented into the world, it's a great passage for us to be doing on the first Sunday of Advent. Ever since Jesus advented into the world, this has been happening because the kingdom of heaven is coming and running up against the kingdoms of this earth, and that creates conflict. Jesus says, love your neighbor. Jesus says, love your enemy. Jesus says, love the Samaritan. Jesus says, only through me will you be saved. Jesus says you can't earn it by obeying. Jesus says you have to learn how to take up your cross. All these ways, break, break, break against the kingdoms of this world. It is the age you and I are presently living in. So in the Hebrew, it is on like Donkey Kong. You and I are in it right now. To be a follower of the Lamb is to live in a time of trouble. We are protected and sealed, but not from suffering or even martyrdom. It's a protection from being overwhelmed by the evil one and a protection of our loyalty and commitment. It's a sober but safe word and time that we are hearing about. This present age is a time of tribulation and a time when God protects and sustains and nourishes those of us who are his own, even if appearances seem otherwise because things are not as they appear. There is more to this world than meets your eye and my eye. God's at work even when you and I can't see it, feel it, experience it. Jesus is on the throne even when you and I can't see it or feel it or experience it. Again, when did this start? As soon as Jesus came into the world. And it will end when he returns to restore the world but the New Testament tells us it will intensify as we get closer to the final crisis. And for millennium, the church, faithful church, obedient church, loving church, has been trying to figure out when that is. Maybe it's this time, maybe it's that time. There have been all kinds of groups all over the world. It's coming now, it's coming here, it's gonna happen here. We're trying to chart it because it's important. 
We want, I want Jesus to return. I would like to know. If I knew, I would tell you. But I don't. What I do know is right now, you and I are living between the R's. And we are sealed and safe and beckoned to obey and follow. Next question. What then, in light of all of that, does this passage have to teach us, Dean, about becoming the people of God in this in-between time? Who are we? Who am I? What should I know about myself from this passage and each other? Well, we've already said we're safe, we're sealed. We can expect to suffer. Jesus is dedicated to helping us persevere. We need not fear. Our lamb will be our shepherd. But I want to focus on one lovely characteristic of our new family, just one, and then again, some implications. John experiences this, this posse, this new family of Jesus, two different ways in the text. Picture you're cresting a hill and you hear sounds. A loud set of people worshiping the lamb. First it says he hears them and he hears these 12 tribes of 12,000 of Dan, 12,000, not of Dan, but 12,000 of Judah and Reuben and Asher and Manasseh. They list these 12 tribes of Israel. These are symbolic numbers. It's not literally 144,000 people who will be there. But the first experience he has of them is, is hearing of them. He crests the hill, let's imagine, and then he sees this multitude. So what he heard was this 12 and 12 to 144, but now he sees them. And how many are there when he sees them? A multitude passed. Counting, this is describing the same group of people. It's two scenes, two experiences of the same group. They're past counting. And this new, big, unexpected family of ours is from every nation, every language, every tribe, every tongue. Every, 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 every. So you mean they speak Korean, Spanish, Japanese, Aramaic, Portuguese, Mandarin, and Cantonese, Japanese, Indonesian, Arabic, Hindi, Tagalog, French, even English? Yeah, that's what the text is saying. You mean they're from Russia, Ukraine, Korea, Colombia, Chile, Guatemala, Canada, Estonia, Serbia, Croatia, Israel, Gaza. We believe in early October there are at least 30,000 Christians in Gaza. Even in America, even from America? Yes, it's exactly what John is saying. And seeing and hearing a multitude past counting from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Like we said last week from 1 Peter, no matter the very, very important human ethnicity you were given at birth, that you were birthed into, no matter the ethnicity you bring to Jesus, you and I are being formed into a new heavenly, united in the cross, Jesus ethnicity, a new race of people. Kingdom of priests, as Peter said. And there are and will be more of us than we can count. More than you can count. This is from a scholar named Paul Spilsbury. The final tally of God's people will include individuals from every corner of the globe, not just people from ethnic Israel. Indeed, the great multitude from many nations may be understood as a fulfillment of God's promise to the patriarch Abraham. And you heard that in Genesis, right? When that was read this morning, when Claire read Genesis 12. I will bless you, and you, through you will bless all the nations. God has been on about building this multi-ethnic people into a new people for his name since the beginning. There were always ways to join 
Israel in the Old Testament, we know that we see people like Rahab and Ruth and Naaman and Uriah the Hittite, people who wanted to be in on God's story. Now, it's beyond what we can imagine. You can't even count it. Some of you are probably like, I could count it. No, you couldn't count. And some of this family, frankly, will probably find not only surprising, but maybe even disturbing. Because we'll think, I didn't think those types of people would be people God would welcome. But we've said several times throughout this series, well, God's arms are bigger than your arms and my arms. God's table is bigger than your table and my table. And note the 12 tribes that are listed. Again, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to look at this. This is a weird list, this 12 tribes of Israel. There's no other list like it in the Bible. One, it starts with Judah. There are other times that happens. Instead of Reuben, who's the oldest son of Jacob, I think we can figure out why that happens because Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. So, okay, we can, Judah jumping Reuben, fine. Reuben's got all kinds of issues anyway. But there's another tribe in there that might be Weird, doesn't make any sense. Do you know what that is? If you've got a Bible, take a look. There's no Dan. Thank you, brother. Not surprised you got that. Dan had some issues. We think he's just tossed because there was there, uh, idolatry and worship in particular ways in the northern or in Dan's tribal area in Israel. We think that might be one reason. So you take one out, Dan's out. That means now we're down to 11. We can't have that. These are symbolic numbers. Manasseh. Manasseh's weird. Go back and look through Genesis, see if Jacob had a son of Manasseh. He didn't. Who had a son of Manasseh? Joseph. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. We believe that they sort of combined this one into one tribe. Who was Manasseh's mom? An Egyptian woman, Asenath, the daughter of a priest in Egypt. So she was Egyptian. That means that Abraham's great-grandson was biracial before the end of Genesis. That means that, that, that the whole ethnic kingdom of heaven was biracial by late Genesis. So God has been about building a kingdom from his name that is not just Israel, that is not just your tribe, not just the people you want to make sure they are, not just what you speak, since the beginning. The point is the church of Jesus purchased by the blood of the lamb made up of Jews and Gentiles, Israelis and Arabs and Koreans and Japanese and Canadians and Americans is the new Israel. Now, this is not new news in the New Testament. James talks about it. Peter talks about it. We know Paul talks about it. People transformed by Jesus and who suddenly understand the fulfillment of the Old Testament begin to teach this for decades after Jesus' death, right up to the revelation to John. And Jesus makes sure that when John's invited into heaven, he looks and sees, look how big this is. There's even a tribe for the biracial son of a daughter of a priest of Egypt here. I said this last week, but I mean it again this week. That makes me want to cry. Hallelujah. Worthy is the lamb. The conflict you feel and experience between people. Jesus is going to heal. When you read the paper and you see what's happening 
in Ukraine, the hostility between people, the external, internal conflict, Jesus is going to heal. He's going to do it by making us bow down to the lamb. We're all going to have to admit and confess that the world is not as you and I see. So two quick implications. Implication number one, you and I should learn to love a broad family now. We've said this several times throughout this series. I need you and you need me. And we need it for our own well-being, our own health, but also to bear witness to Jesus and this kingdom. You're just getting ready for heaven. Love somebody different in this room or in this city or at your work this week. You're just getting ready for heaven. But to not do that is to deny the story of Jesus, the vision. It's Jesus' vision given to, to John. Come see this vision. Implication number one. Implication number two. You and I are, are living between the R's and we are meant to push back evil. We should be the whole problem for evil. I'm stealing this from a buddy of mine. A buddy of mine collects crazy patches to put on his biker shirt. And he has a patch that has a skeleton on it and it says, don't be, the, don't be part of the problem. And what you want to assume the backhand will be be the solution, right? But it says, don't be part of the problem, be the whole problem. And with you and I are meant to be the whole problem for evil. You're not meant to be part of the problem. You're meant to push evil. And you're meant to be brave because the horizon behind you, you're sealed, and the horizon ahead of you, you're called to be intimate with Jesus. And you're gonna be okay. And look around the room, we're all planted in this conflict-ridden time. But we were not to be scared and panicked. The North American church over the last few years has at some ways run around like the sky is falling because we're living in a time of conflict. Oh no, oh wait, you and I live between the R's. We're supposed to be brave, we're supposed to know that. We're, people who know the Bible are running around with chickens if their heads cut off. It's, it's not gonna be easy. And what we should do at this church from cradle to grave so that none of us know a day apart from Jesus is prepare you for the struggle together and let you know we're not alone, you're in it together. But guess what? There's things gonna happen that are gonna be hard. And we might suffer together. We might lose some power certain places that we have loved having power. We might need to repent. We might need to be bold and initiate some places that are gonna tick some people off or make us less approved, or make people in town or our neighbors think we're crazy. Guess what? You're crazy. Amen. But the, the message to John for us is a comfort. And again, it's not supposed to make us ready for a courageous nap. It's supposed to make us ready for courageous action. I heard this great quote. This is from the theologian Bob Marley. Some of you know who Bob Marley is. Go look him up. It was given to a guy struggling by an Anglican priest. That's how I'm tying it all together. So somebody said to Bob Marley, How do you, you know, why do you keep writing music? You've written music. You know, the world is, is going awry. It's chaotic. And he said, you know, I know there are people who get up every day who are dedicated to doing evil. 
And so why wouldn't I get up dedicated every day to do good? And if Bob Marley can say that, shouldn't, shouldn't you and I, children of the king, saved by the lamb, entrusted with the most eternal news anyone could be entrusted with, shouldn't we get up every day to do good? To be the whole problem? Don't be part of the problem this week for Evril. Be the whole freaking problem. You are sealed and safe. That's good news. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for John and his example. He's exiled and he could be sad, angry, turn his back on you, think that this is not what he was in for, all the ways I would probably respond to being on Patmos. And instead, he's worshiping. And because you love him and love us, you, you, you go to him and give him this good news. Thank you for a, a family that is way bigger than anything I could imagine. It's got every tribe, tongue, and nation in it. Cover my friends. Please take these words and spark them with your imagination. So this week, we might be trouble for evil. We might push back and advent in new ways. They can do way more than I can do by myself. But we can do way more that brings you glory as well. We pray this in your holy name, amen.